Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Cuddly Vine for March 10th, 2018. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Oh, good to have y'all. And later here in the show, we're going to welcome back for um, the multiple times now, uh, David Mark, who is currently in his new position as editor of the um, Washington Examiner. Uh, he's been with CNN. He's been with um, uh, campaign elections. He's written his own books that we've discussed in the past, but we're, we're going to discuss all kind of political issues with him across the nation when he comes on in just a minute because he writes pretty much about uh, races and um, issues that affect everybody nationwide. Uh, until then, we're going to stay national, if you will, and we've been doing this buy-sell-hold segment throughout the um, primary season, if you will, kind of about after Christmas time. Candidates started getting in the race, and as they get in the race, uh, we talk about them, and there are two candidates that have gotten in the race, um, one several weeks ago, but we just were so busy we didn't get to him, and then I think we've got another uh, candidate getting the race, and so we're going to do buy, sell, and hold right off the bat so we don't get pressed for time on Bernie Sanders and John Hickenlooper, and so we're going to go first with Bernie Sanders, uh, the number two candidate in the number two finisher in the Democratic primary in 2016, independent senator from Vermont that caucuses with the Democrats but is an independent party affiliation, and he's going to run again. He starts out with Great name ID, but then uh, a minority of um, voters supported him last time in the Democratic primary because Hillary Clinton defeated him, so it's not like everybody voted for him, but everybody's familiar with him. That said, Catherine, I'll pass it to you first on buy, sell, hold on Bernie Sanders. I'm putting a hold on Bernie Sanders, um, mainly because, you know, I – I'm not a great fan of his, but I do have some uh, – I agree with him on a lot of things. And I think it's the the um, conversation and campaigns will be made better by some of the things that he'll be talking about. But I'm just – I know he has great name ID, but I think I'm not convinced that he can Donald Trump. So I just want to see him in the mix a little bit before I uh, sell him. Yes. Tim, your thoughts? Well, I'm going to buy him. Uh, He should at least do very well in both Iowa and New Hampshire. His big test, of course, is going to come where it came before, and that's with minority voters once we leave those two states. Um, That's where it all kind (laughs) of, not to use a pun here, but that's where it turned south for him. he he was not very popular at all with minority voters. He's going to have to figure out a way to win those because they're going to dominate a lot of primaries once we leave that northern tier of states. But until South Carolina, he's going to be, you know, one of the top, I'd say, two candidates uh, in both states. And, and, and so uh, I got to do a buy on that. He's 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 a top two or three guy right now. Okay, um, I, I have my own personal thoughts, and then I have how, how he did. Um, obviously, his name I did, he's going to start out pretty strong. So I guess if I have to make just a, one of these three choices, I'm going to say hold. Because, um, I mean, Tim, you're right that he just he starts out pretty high, and, and how far does he drop? I mean, he's going to have his core supporters that probably still are going to stick with him early on, although I think a lot of that was there were very few candidates, and so some people just didn't like Hillary Clinton, even though I might have, 
and they wanted somebody else, and that's where some of the support came from, those folks are going to have um, other choices. Now, I'll say this. How many supporters do you think he's really going to pick up from Hillary Clinton voters, which made up a majority of the Democratic electorate? I mean, I'll pose that to you all first. Catherine, do you think he can pick up um, a lot of Clinton support? Well, I think whoever gets the nomination is going to have the support of all the Democrats. Oh, so, well, yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree. I, you're going you're gonna to consolidate it. I'm talking about in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, on oh, and on and on. Can he pick those voters up? Not that many. Not that many because they have a hey. lot of other choices. Yes. Tim? You know, they have, they have a lot of other choices that probably um, – you know, they have other women, they have other, they have people of color, they have, you know, a lot of choices. So I, I don't think he's going to pick up many Hillary voters, in my opinion. Tim, what do you think? Well, there's the bad blood angle, too. That 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 is certainly a leftover from 2016. A lot, a lot of Clinton supporters, you know, just huh, really were pretty upset with him, thinking that he was part of the the package that ultimately led to her defeat, although I don't know if it's really fair to say that about him. But no, I don't, uh, that's not the... She, th- those are the establishment voters. If Joe Biden enters the race, those votes are going to people like him. Uh, Bernie Sanders is going to be fighting it out uh, for the progressive wing of the party, uh, 40 to 45 percent of the voters, and he's going to have to be fighting some other candidates for that. But no, he's not. He's he's not going to pick up any Hillary Clinton support, especially in the first two states. Yeah, well, I mean, let's talk about that. I mean, he is going to be seen as a progressive, but you can be an angry progressive, or you can be an aspirational progressive. And he's definitely the first type. And if you want to talk about contrast, um, you know, Donald Trump in many ways is a, a grumpy old man. But Donald Trump probably honestly doesn't look as grumpy and angry as Bernie Sanders does a lot of times. Could the fact that Bernie Sanders seems just angry about everything and, and just I, just has a negative vibe about him, could that be a real Achilles heel for him, do you think, Catherine? Well, it is for me because I like an aspirational leader, um, not one who's, you know, so aspirational that they don't make any sense. But I do like a bit of, you know, um, optimism in, uh, of, in, in whomever I vote for. So it doesn't work for me. And I think there's uh, I mean, I think there's obviously a lot of uh, disappointment and anger towards the current administration. But I think the. I don't think the only angle to beating that is to also be angry. I mean, I think a lot of people are angry, and but I think we need to have some optimism in the ticket to um, inspire voters and, um, you know, uh, to inspire voters. That's probably all we need. And not all we Tim, need, your thoughts on the – oh, yeah, on, on his basic demeanor. Well, see, you interpret it as anger, and uh, I don't. Indignance, the word I would use, and and I happen to like that about him. I, I like I like that he's in in Trump's face, firing on all cylinders at him. I, I, I sort of like that about him. And Bernie Bernie's uh, voters are really drawn to him, or so they say, by his ideas. That Medicare for all thing, which is not that popular amongst the Democratic electorate as a whole, not not as popular as some other things. Uh, but uh, no, I, I, I don't think that's going to affect him at all. But now, age, age is something you need to talk about here. That, it, it, I mean, it, it is fair to do that here, right? Yes, it is. Well, I mean, you know, Donald Trump's past 70. Wouldn't it be nice to run somebody younger against him? Uh, It it would. It would be, once again, the contrast. I mean, 
I have a feeling in a few Bernie, weeks we're going to get Sanders another 70-something-year-old candidate. Our top, yes. our top two placers in the polls are both nearly 80. Yeah. We need to think they about that. They will be 80. Yeah, we need yeah. to think yeah, about but, that. I, and, I, and I'll say this, and I, I, I think that is going to be an issue that stays true when we talk about another 70-something-year-old candidate. But I will say this, and there, at least that person, the former vice president, is much more sunny in how he approaches things, even if he's old. Catherine? I just want to say, for me, it's not just – it's not because they're old. It's more because they're not young. I feel like we need some younger leadership in our in our party and in our country. I'm not saying that I don't I, – I mean, I'm sure that Joe Biden or <coughs> – but I just feel like we've um, – it's time for us to have uh, a younger outlook. Um, I, I, I just want to be careful that I'm, not, that I'm not sounding like I'm ageist. It's not that. It's just that I feel like we've almost skipped an entire generation of leaders by keeping um, these older leaders uh, in office. And I think we, it's time for us to – to open up those gates and let some of those younger people, and we're not talking about young. I mean, Kamala Harris is 54. Um, Elizabeth Warren is 69, so she's not even that young. So I, I just, I think it's worth looking at, but not in a fact that like we don't like them because they're old. It's just that we like, we, we would like to see some younger um, leadership. Now it could be that we find that, we have an older candidate for vice president or president, and then one of these younger uh, candidates for the other. That that might be a good balance. Yeah. I mean, and it should be about merit and ideas and everything else more than yeah. the age. Um, but to talk about skipping generations, Korean War generation, they got skipped. Um, when George H.W. Uh, Bush defeated Michael Dukakis, that was pretty much the only time a nominee has been from that generation because um, it would then skip to Clinton and uh, Bush – W. Bush and, Go- and Gore ran and, you know, Kerry was Vietnam generation. Donald Trump's Vietnam generation. So pretty much that's a, a group and a generation that just got skipped over. And I guess sometimes in our nation's history that happens, and that's just how it is. I mean um, – we pick who we pick, and so we'll kind of see how this thing fleshes out. But let's talk about the next candidate, by sell hold, and that would be former uh, Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. I think before that he was mayor of Denver, apparently a very successful restaurateur that um, then ran for mayor and used that to uh, step up to um, Governor of Colorado. Tim, your thoughts on John Hickenlooper? Well, I got to sell him. Uh, I, I think he's he's one of those people that's going to be stuck in that very bottom one percent and below tier. He simply doesn't have any wiggle room in which to move up. And don't laugh when I say this, but that name. Could you imagine running a nominee with the name Hickenlooper? People will actually vote against somebody because they have a name like that for president. I don't know why that is, but they will. Go figure. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, the name, I mean, after we've had a president just before that had a name that didn't sound like the traditional American yeah, name. Don't, don't even compare had those in two. It. Don't, People don't compare that, those so. two at all. <laughs> in no way, kind of funny sounding, and one sounds not traditional, long-term American, if you will, to use some type of term to define it. Um, Catherine, your thoughts on John Hickenlooper? Um, I, I'm I'm torn between hold and sell because, um, you know, Colorado is a really interesting state. They're kind of a moderate state. They, um, you know, they have a – Hickenlooper has been a good leader there. Um, but, again, I, I, I don't disagree with Tim about names. I mean, it's, it's something that we 
candidate as a whole package in a campaign, and I'm just I'm just having a hard time with his name. Same with Buttigieg, Buttigieg in uh, from Indiana. I don't think that eliminates him. It's just one of the one of the things that makes makes you pause. Uh, so I'm going to say hold and see how he does in these, you know, as we go forward in Iowa and North Carolina or South Carolina and um, just how he does in the media, just to see how he holds up. Yeah, I'm just going to sell straight up, and it's not because of his name. It's because, A, there's just too darn many people, um, and I don't think he has anything special that makes him catch fire. And secondly, I've heard a lot, and I want to maybe chain it into a bigger argument, but in the case of John Hickenlooper, he was – well, let's just say at minimum he was not very tough on fracking. Uh, some people would claim he was almost pro-fracking, which is, is pretty um, – tenable position in the Democratic primary. Now, I will say this. If you take all 13 candidates at this point, if we add two more, which are very likely, every one of these 15 candidates, no one's going to be perfect in anyone's eyes. Everybody's going to have something that somebody doesn't like, and somebody's just going to have to get over certain things. I mean, I know there's going to be some things for some people that are non-starters, while there's others can overlook it, but I think the fracking issue it's probably going to be a bridge too far for too many Democrats uh, to get on board with him, and that may really help him or hurt you him know, from gaining you, traction you, in the you, primary. Him? You hit on something very important. If you look at yeah, Dick Looper's record, uh, he's, he can be attacked in both directions from the middle because he was very liberal on some issues, too liberal for the typical general election voter, and he was far too conservative on some other issues, uh, again, for, for, the, for the same group of voters. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think he loses in both ways, because while he was real, real, real conservative uh, on that fracking issue, he, he, was, he went the other way on guns, you know. You know, because of Columbine and stuff like that going on out there, he and and you know that mass shooting in the theater, he went the other way on 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 that, and a lot of voters around the country just couldn't warm up to that either. So uh, that that's a good point you made, David. I just wanted to throw and, that. And in the there. gun issue may not hurt him in the in the Democratic primary. Catherine, you were about to say something too as well. No, I, I said that's a really good point about fracking that I hadn't thought about, no, but I'm I mean, still keeping my hold. I didn't know much about it. Yeah, because, I mean, I don't live in Colorado, but I think when he announced on Political Wire, there was a lot of talk about that. And if you're not reading Political Wire, you need to start. Whoever, I'm talking to other people. I know Tim and Catherine do because they're forced to uh, due to all my <laughs> link sending. Uh, but then also the comments on that one, they're so much different. It's not just – um, you know, everybody gets outraged. It's really some good insight, or some people try to be funny, and, and a lot of times they are, but that's really what you get on the comments there. You really get insight that adds to the conversation. Um, well, let's kind of chain this buy-sell hold on those two candidates into the – I don't know. Is this the first Des Moines Register poll that came out on the Democratic uh, no. primary Democratic caucus in Iowa? No. Okay, it's not the first no. one. Well, guess what? Uh, we timed that, and that, that works so good. Let's talk about it on the other side of our guest, and we want to welcome back to the Kudzu Vine, Mr. David Mark. Welcome, David. Great to be back with you. My pleasure. Great to have you back. And, and since you were on, you've uh, gotten a new job role. It may even be a promotion. It sounds like it could be. Tell our listeners what you're doing right now. Yeah, I am a, a news editor, a deputy news senior news editor at the Washington Examiner, which, as the name suggests, is in Washington, D.C. It's an interesting outlet in that the editorial side commentary is known to be conservative, but news is down the middle and very much non-conservative. Not not liberal either, but just impartial. So good way to be back into the news business, and uh, I'm really enjoying it so far. Well, and that fits with you. We've always found you to be a super informed guy, 
but we've never seen your analyst, your analysis to be uh, big time partisan either way. So that fits well with you. Um, I had told the, my co-host that I was going to ask you about one thing, and I am going to ask you about that, but I almost forgot uh, when I was thinking, oh, yeah, your book, Dog Whistles, um, and, you know, other little uh, terms that get made in. Of course, fill the rest of that title in when you talk about this. But I wanted to ask you, since you wrote that book a few years ago, particularly with the Donald Trump presidency, uh, both parties may be moving a little bit further from the center. Are there any new dog whistle terms that have arisen in the past few years? <laughs> well, one that I think has come up that we're just seeing in the last few days or so is this idea of Trump being his own communications director. It's almost become a cliche at this point because, of course, we had the departure of another Trump White House communications director just on Friday, Bill Shine, who had been a big executive at Fox News. And this is the fifth or sixth communications director that Trump has had in his two-plus years in office. So it's kind of become a cliche that he acts as his own communications director. You kind of wonder why they even fill the role at this point. Yeah, using uh, Twitter, I guess, is his megaphone more so than the daily press briefing. Um, Right, and it's not like it's a constitutional office like – Secretary of Treasury or Defense or something like that. It doesn't have to be a White House communications director. And whatever, as you all know from working campaigns, you have short-term plans, long-term messaging. You think about benchmarks where you want to be six months from now, then two weeks out. And, of course, you got to change up plans when, camp, when campaigns go in different directions. But you always try to have some some measurements. And with him, it's just – Take it as you go, and that's probably about all anybody who works for him can really do at any time. Yes. Well, um, we, we uh, went in and read all – or just looked at the headlines, read a lot of the stories that you've been writing on the Washington Examiner, and several stuck out to me. The only one I'm going to ask about first, and I'll reserve the right to come back around and add to that, is um, the Iowa Senate race I find really fascinating because Iowa's just – state's so synonymous with politics. It's a state that is a little bit more purple than a lot of others. Um, Joni Ernst seemingly is more popular um, than she might even be when she won. I just get that idea. And, and Tom Vilsack, though, is definitely a, a very popular politician in the state as a Democrat. He was thinking about running for Senate and declined. Tell us kind of about why he decided not to run, who could run, and how um, – Winnable is this race for the Democrats? Just starting at the end of that, it, I think it's an uphill race for Democrats. Iowa has moved in a somewhat Republican red direction in that Trump won it in 2016 over Hillary Clinton pretty decisively, 51% to 41%. That's, you know, when, as you know, once you get over 50% over a majority, that's tough to overcome, to claw back. Now, Democrats did have a pretty good 2018 House where Democrats beat two incumbent Republicans. They picked up two seats. Now they have three out of the four congressional seats. So it's not like it's off limits. But Joni Ernst was one of the Republicans who won in the big year of 2014, the big GOP wave. She hasn't really done anything to upset her constituents. She's a pretty much down-the-middle, mainstream Trump conservative, if you want to call that mainstream. But she's a, she follows his line. She does what, what she's told by leadership. And it, But it is one of those years, funny things can happen. Actually, Democrats previously have done pretty well in presidential years in Iowa. So we could see some funny things happen. The, about the only name to really emerge at this point is the guy who challenged kind of racialist-tinged Congressman Steve King last time, J.D. Shulton, over in the eastern part of Iowa. That's a real conservative district. You're basically more in South Dakota territory than you are like in Des Moines at that point, just very traditionally Republican. He came closer. He lost around 51 to 48 percent, which is pretty good for that district, but he still came up short. So he might run again with Secretary Vilsack, the former governor, two-term governor of Iowa. Not terribly surprising. He wouldn't want to undertake a big 
competitive campaign at this point. I think he's doing some consulting now. He's head of a, an association, probably making decent money, and maybe he just doesn't want to jump into the fray of electoral politics again. Yes. Well, you answered that multi-parter. I'm going to pass it to Catherine. She'll pass it to Tim. And if they don't cover something, I may have another question for you. Catherine? Sure. Tonight, we really appreciate it. It's good to have you back on after. It's been a while, I think. Um, Yeah, it has been. Good to be back with you. I can't resist but ask about Georgia. We all are hoping that we're going to be, you know, a a front-runner state. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts about how Georgia fits into the – um, the landscape for 2020. Actually, I think it's a pretty important part of Democrats' plans. I can't say it's a top-tier state, but I think it's definitely on the next rung. I was just thinking about Iowa, that that one seems to have moved away from Democrats at the presidential level, at least at this point. Things can change, but that's how it appears that In March 2019, I think Democrats actually might be better off just kind of giving up, forsaking states like Ohio and Iowa, where they've made big plays before and spent a lot of time and resources and come up short. And they'd be better off looking at some other opportunities. I think the first thing Democrats have to do is either not particularly original, but make sure they can claw back Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania which is, of course, what lost the election for them in 2016. And that seems plausible if they plan right. Then they've also got to play defense a bit in Minnesota and New Hampshire, where Hillary Clinton won, but it was much closer than is expected. So they've got to make sure they have those nailed down. Assuming they do, though, that gives them an electoral college majority and a little room to play with there. So then they probably start looking at Arizona, where they picked up a sentence. That was a big win. In 2018, and then after that, I'd say Georgia comes next. So I'd say it's like a nice, solid second-tier state, depending on how things are looking further down the line. Of course, they've got to be heartened by the fact that there's an open congressional seat that they'll be going after Rob Woodall's House seat, and they picked up that other House seat in the Atlanta suburbs, Lucy McBath, which I admit was the biggest surprise to me on election night 2018. I just didn't see that one coming. So I think it's overall it's going to be tough for Democrats, but it is not out of the realm of possibility. And I'd be interested to see how they would actually target that, just the media buys in Atlanta and where that would be most effective, et cetera. Yeah, and, I, and it'll be interesting to see how Stacey Abrams plays into the whole thing, whether she's running for Senate or if she's just uh, – a very visible advisor and um, leader in the state. So, well, thank you. Yeah. I'm going to pass it to Tim, but I'm going to use the same card David did that if there's time, I may have another question for you. Okay. So, uh, on to you, Tim. Uh, good evening, Mr. Mark. Good, yeah, to, good talk to speak to with you again. again. I'd like to start you off with a couple of media items that were in the news in, in Washington this week. And you, you touched on it briefly when you was talking about the communications director. But are daily White House briefings now gone not to return, at least during this presidency? And the second part of that is, is that politically a smart decision? In a, time will tell if it's, smart, if it's a smart decision. To answer your question directly, they're greatly diminished. They seem to pop up every once in a while but at at this point you know we are more than two years into this administration the last one i think was in december or something like that and so i don't think we can really count on a lot more and i i I think it's a shame i think it's a an important tradition that maybe could have used some reform admittedly i will say this about trump though he actually doesn't answer a fair amount of reporter questions they're not necessarily in the traditional style that a lot of journalists would like in that they're not from the White House briefing room. They're, you see them out in front of the, on the White House lawn in front of the helicopter, Marine One, kind of off-the-cuff situations like that. But he actually does go on for a fair amount of time. If you look at the total amount of time he's answered questions, it's probably not too far off his predecessors, but it's definitely a diminishment. It's not by accident that it's happening. At the same time, a lot of these questions – and, and a lot of the answers just seem to be 
kind of showmanship on both sides. And, you know, this is not to buy into the White House spin at all on Jim Acosta at CNN, who I think is a plays an important role, but some of that is showmanship. And, you know, maybe both sides could find a way to do it more effectively. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that broke this week involved Fox News. So I got to ask straight up: Was it a wise decision politically for the Democratic National Committee to prohibit Fox News from hosting any of the Democratic primary debates? I think that's a big mistake for National Democrats to do. Fox News, like them or not, they have a big national audience. And if you look, if you break down their demographics, it's not all hardcore conservatives and Republicans. You do have independents in closely fought states. You have people who maybe are persuadable or at least really – at least give you credit for willing to go kind of into enemy territory. And if you look at past – these debates would have been moderated by the objective journalists there, Brett Baer, Chris Wallace. Martha McCallum, they would not have been moderated by Sean Hannity, Laura Ingraham, Tucker Carlson, etc. So I think it's a big mistake for Democrats to go that route. I understand that, and I think there's probably plenty of complaints about Fox, but I really think it makes them look like they're scared more than anything else. And what of President Trump's reaction to it when he threatened not to go on any of the other major networks? I don't think he could do that. I don't think he has it in him to refrain from that. I, you know, he did threaten to go and not take part in the debate in 2020. Uh-huh. I can't see a president getting away with it at this point. You would just be called a chicken, and you would have to be so secure in your base to come out for that. That um, <clears throat> I'm actually not so worried about that one. Okay. Um, turning to the presidential race, of, of course – Everybody's keeping an eye on Bernie Sanders. Um, now, in 2016, obviously, he settled comfortably into what an anti-Hillary mode. If you didn't like Hillary Clinton and you were voting in the Democratic primaries, well, Sanders was your guy. Yeah. And that that constituted a lot of his 2016 support. Will that support be fragmented next year? Do you think? It's interesting. Early polling shows him still doing pretty well. He's up there with Joe Biden just behind it. It's kind of ironic two white guys, if I could put it that way, are still uh-huh. leading in a very diverse field. Now, of course, it's so early. Biden isn't even in the race. There's all kinds of caveats. But I, I'm one of these people. I never ruled out Bernie this time. He got a lot of negative press when he entered. There was talk that. He was splintered, the field was splintered with Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and some of the other more progressive or seemingly progressive candidates. But he's got a brand. People know him. He's authentic. And I think that counts for a lot. I think one thing you can say about him is you ask him a question any time of day, he will give you an honest answer. He'll tell you what he thinks. He's been saying the same thing for 35 years since he was mayor, socialist mayor of Burlington, Vermont. And I think that counts for a lot with people. It's like why, when you ask people why, you know, the old Ted Kennedy question, why do you want to be president? He actually has a pretty good answer. You might like it, you might not, but that's better than what most of these other rivals can come up with. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you one more question, and I'm I'm going to throw it back to David with the same caveat that Catherine had that if there's time – Uh, I may come back with another question in this segment. And the question is this. Is Barack Obama Joe Biden's ace in the hole if Joe Biden decides to run? No, I don't think so. I think Biden would really have to prove this on his own. And I think former President Obama has been pretty wise about being in public sparingly, you know, for the most part. He really hasn't taken the bait when Trump has gone after him in such an undignified way for a sitting president. You only have so much power and influence as a former president. You have some moral authority, but if you use it too much, it can hurt you. We've seen that even you know, as you're, you're back in the woods with Jimmy Carter going on 38-plus years in that 
he's got a lot of attention, but his act kind of wore thin after a while, too, at least according to some of his critics. And I think Obama maybe could help Biden if it's a crucial primary and it's really close right before Iowa. He were to come in and tip his hand, but I don't, I'm not sure Biden would really want that either because he, he I, I assume he would be running on the fact that the Obama t- tenure was kind of the capstone on his career. He had already served 36 years in the Senate, so it was it was almost mostly more like a retirement gig for him, if you can call the vice presidency that. Uh, but uh, I think he's got his own accomplishments to want to run on. All right, and with that, I'm going to throw it back to David. David? Yes. Well, uh, well, David, I didn't uh, plan on this question, but since Tim kind of brought it up and you made it such an interesting answer, I do want to ask a follow-up about the Fox News possible debate. So you've worked in, you know, covering media and other things. So could the Democratic Party, the DNC, gone to Fox and said, look, we want the moderators to be Shep Smith and um, – you know, Chris Matt, not Chris Matthews. Um, oh gosh, his name's Chris, Chris Wallace. Wallace the, their main guy on yeah. the the regular station on Sunday mornings. You know, two guys that you can kind of trust to be, you know, much more down the middle. We want that to happen. Yeah. Either a, we want to deba- de- debate a with some of our candidates because they're not going to do a you know a varsity and JV debate. They're going to do everybody you know in in, di- in equal pools. We want one debate at right. 8, we want one at 9.30. That's going to take up all blocks for Thursday night, whatever night we pick. So basically, could the DNC have controlled Fox News programming to put Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram on the sideline for a whole evening? And if they agreed to say, we're going to do three debates, we're going to do one in the West Coast, one in the Middle, and one in the East Coast, could they have put all those three talkers on the sideline for three primetime evenings? You know, that's a great point. I hadn't quite thought of it that way, but I, I suppose it would effectively have that result and put the put the you know, the right wing populist talk, really the Democrat bashing, Democrat hating hosts on on the sidelines there for a while. I, I don't know that the DMC could specifically select hosts. I, that, that may be part of the negotiations, but I, I, my guess is I don't think they can actually say you can't have this or that person, but there's no way I, – I, if somehow they came to an agree debate agreement and all of a sudden Fox said, actually, Sean Hannity is going to be one of the hosts, Democrats would just pull out at this point. You know, It's not yeah. like a business contractual agreement. So both sides would have some interest in, – in direct in keeping their their word on that. So overall, I just think it's a it looks bad for the Democrats. It looks like they're afraid to try and go into difficult territory that they need to win over. I don't blame them for being mad at how some things have gone down. Some of the coverage is pretty bad, and some of the stuff behind the scenes is it's pretty awful there. But this just doesn't seem like the most effective way of, of dealing with it. Yeah, and I do think there could have been some candidates that said, well, I'm not, you know, to try to score points, I'm not going to go on that debate. But if you could have angled it in a way to control the coverage for at least a few nights and gotten those people off the air uh, and yeah. tried to, uh, uh, to bring the word to the, the, to the uneducated of, of Fox News' base, uh, that might have been good. I mean, it's kind of like a mission work, uh, the way I look at it. They don't know the gospel. You've got to bring it to them. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and so uh, well, one other question. Let me interrupt. And, go ahead, Matt. I yes. just want to interrupt and say sure. maybe they tried that before they made this maybe decision. Maybe they tried that very thing. It's yeah. possible. You know, who knows what went mind. on behind behind the scenes? But it just seemed kind of like it was rash, and they just did it very suddenly. The thing is, though, it doesn't stop individual candidates from going on. Also, there's another element to this. Fox, in theory, could just host its own debate and say, hey, Democrats, hey, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, uh, all the other guys, come on. I don't care if the DNC station. I bet a lot of them, particularly the second-tier candidates, would probably just come on. This has happened in some of the previous cycles where candidates went rogue around the parties. So I don't think that we've actually heard the last of this, these debate disputes. Oh, and, and speaking of that, you, the, yeah, I know you used to live in California. I would love to see an hour of the former attorney general of California, Kamala Harris, 
uh, going one-on-one with uh, Judge Janine, she'd probably use her as a verbal punching bag um, <laughs> for an hour, so that'd be pretty entertaining. Well, one more follow-up question, because yeah. Catherine had asked about Georgia, and you had alluded to that um, congressional seat, which is going to be, if not the, one of the top targets, uh, Georgia 7, the seat that's currently held by Rob Woodall. It will be an open seat. Um, my thinking, and I've worked in, in both of those districts in the past on campaigns and knowing about them, if you look at those districts, the southern half of each of those districts is very um, more democratic, more progressive. Mm-hmm. The upper half, the northern half of both of those districts are very conservative. When you were researching that article on Rob Woodall, you wrote, did you hear any inklings that the Georgia legislature might redistrict those two districts and make a northern one and a southern one. And my thinking is, for some reason, you know, GOP Georgians love, and particularly the insiders in the know, they love Karen Handel. And they are probably just torn up that she got beat. They had to probably pick five other congressmen to get beat before her. Um, And would they think about redistricting those two and then making a northern Karen Handel district and just – giving Lucy McBath the Southern District and just saying, you get one, we get one, because if not, they're probably going to get zero and Democrats are going to get two. Right, right. And I have heard some rumblings about legislative Republicans and the governor moving toward a new round of redistricting. wouldn't be surprising considering what they pulled before on that front. And that would be, if they were going to go that route, it would kind of make sense because they would face voting rights act situation problems too. With uh, with the Lucy McBath seat, if they just try to write her out, even though the Justice Department is it's been diluted, their oversight, even with various rulings, Supreme Court rulings over the year, you can't just take out African American districts willy nilly. That's still against the law, even believe it or not, in this day and age. So that would seem to be the way to go, and that would be more of a traditional gerrymander too. Where, if I can put it this way you kind of have the two sides acting in confluence, even collusion with each other because it benefits both. But uh, i got to say about Lisa McBath, she has been very impressive on Capitol Hill, just the way that she's straddled representing that district. Of course, she's known for taking on gun violence because of the tragedy of her son. But when the Green New Deal was first proposed, she said, eh, not so fast, Medicare for all. She was like, Let, let's hold on. Let's take a look at this more in detail. So she's been very careful, and I'm really impressed by her as a representative. I, I admit before the election, I, I didn't quite know that Jordan Davis had been her son. And then when I saw the election results, I said, oh, my goodness, that was him. And so I think she really has – she's a face that Democrats probably want to be around for a while. Yeah, and I say, make a disclaimer. That's not what I want as a citizen. I don't think that's good <laughs> democracy. But I would never accuse the Georgia GOP of practicing good democracy. Um, I, I don't no, want to sully their reputation. You. They've worked so hard to craft over these many right. years. I, um, I'm with you on that, that front. I think you know, a lot of the redistricting is really disgrace, and that would just give Democrats probably license to go do it in some other states. I'm kind of surprised they don't, they're not more aggressive about it. Uh, it does show, though, that the demographics of the state are – slowly but surely becoming more competitive, and that's something Republicans in Georgia can only fight for so long. It's not going to turn tomorrow, but that Rob Whittle seat was an interesting one, too, because he only won by in 2018 by less than 500 votes, and he wasn't raising much money, and the Republic, House Republican leadership was not happy with him, so they, they are not too sorry to see him just retire at this point, but it's amazing if you just look at the trajectory there, which is over a few years from Tom Price to Lucy McGath and John Linder to perhaps a Democrat there. Uh, that's a big change in you know, the last decade or so. Most definitely. Well, I'm going to pass it over to Catherine and Tim for maybe the last question they might have. Catherine? Sorry, I was on mute. Um, so I just wondered if you wanted to give some thoughts about the president's two-hour and five-minute speech <laughs> at the <laughs> – what's the name well, of that group? I can I, uh, CPAC, the Conservative CPAC. Political Action Convention. Yeah, yeah. Did, you, uh, did you listen to any of it, or 
see Bill Maher's wonderful uh, analysis of it on Friday night? <laughs> I saw a bit. I mean, it was almost it. like a comedy act, but it's the president. Yeah, it's a joke. I mean, it's embarrassing, and it was clearly was going to be. I, I mean, I, look, I'm going to give my own views here a little bit. Every time I see him before the seal of the president of the United States, before Air Force One and Marine One, I blanch a bit and just seeing him behave in that way. It's not over policy. I would say the same thing about a Democratic president if, if they were somehow acting that way. But uh, it's an embarrassment, but utter, unfortunately a very predictable one. And it's what people seem seem to vote for in 2016. Yeah, I don't, I don't, and I, I hear you. That's what people vote for. That that kind of bigger than life uh, character. And yeah, I, you I, know, I, I say all funny. the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's such a big difference between a good candidate and a good president. And I just don't know yeah. how we surpass that problem. I mean, it's it's really a problem. There's been, you know, and I've been around for a long. Tim and I have been around for a long time, and. There's been so many bad candidates who would have been good presidents and so many good candidates who turned out to be bad presidents. I just wish we could um, uh, overcome that somehow. But that was my only question. I'll pass it to Tim. He's got some more. All righty. Now, it appears that a story is brewing that you guys are going to be covering in Washington, of course, heavily, but it appears that our president and the Congress are about to lock horns in another budget fight. Yeah. Of course, the president has proposed uh, <clears throat> much as 5% cuts across the board to many programs, especially entitlements. He's already asked for his nearly $9 billion to, I suppose, pay back the money that he's going to steal to build his wall. Um Politically, how's this going to play out, and uh, how far is this fight going to go? Listen, this could end up in another government shutdown. We just had the oh. awful thirty-day, thirty-five-day protracted deal, and that was over, you know, two point two and a half billion dollars in border funding, something trillion, excuse me, what you know, billion? What am I saying? Over, over, you know, a few years. Now the administration is proposing more north of eight billion dollars more for border funding i think there's more messaging as much as anything else the thing is though the administration still hasn't said where it would actually go on the border and it's just it's physically impossible to build in some of these places or it's nonsensical where you just have these hundreds of miles of i've driven through there in southern new mexico and eastern arizona there's just not that people are not coming over the border there and it's such a it's a poor way of conducting international relations as well. So it's a bad message. So I, I think neither side really wants to have another shutdown, but hard to say at this point. And it's uh, something we can't rule out. We have basically until September, excuse me, yeah, September 30th. So we've got just about six months, a little more than six months to get this thing solved, but could be ugly between now and then. Yeah, but doesn't the president um... – I mean, this this would be like blowing up in his face on steroids compared to just the previous shutdown. We're talking about the whole federal budget now. Oh, that's I a mean, great point, and because those were limited agencies. That, those were, yeah. was about 25% of the federal government last time. You're right. This would be essentially starting from scratch. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Oh, boy, it's almost too scary to think about at this point. Yeah. Uh, somehow I'm glad you're on the front lines of covering it and not me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah you're not missing anything. Okay. And a final question, again, about next year's race. We hear yeah. about the progressive policy proposals such as breaking up big companies and the Green New Deal and Medicare for All. But the truth of the matter is, isn't the main issue going to be Donald Trump? Yeah, I think so. And I think smart Democratic strategists will just acknowledge that. And I think that's probably the wisest way for Democrats to play this. Because, look, they don't really disagree on issues all that much. And mm-hmm. they're, they have 
they have to offer the American people a very stark choice. Do you want more of this? Is this the best we can do? Or do you want a radical change back to civility, normality, decency, et cetera, even if we might disagree on issues from time to time? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I agree. I think that would be the best Democrat's best play just just to go out because he's going to play to his base and play the victim no matter what. So the uh-huh. key is how do you mobilize people who haven't voted before? And how do you do that in Wisconsin and Michigan, get some of those voters back? How do you essentially create new voters? And you still need a candidate that somebody can get excited about. And, of course, that was Hillary Clinton's problem. She was just a dud as a political mm-hmm. candidate. You need somebody with more spark than that. Yeah, but no matter who we nominate, won't Trump still use the tried-and-true attack line? I may not be great, but I'm certainly better than what they're offering you. Sure he will, and it's a matter of if you can get who actually has a backbone who can stand up to that and can be able to push back. And I I think the most effective Democratic opponents have been the ones who have gotten to his kind of pride and manlyhood. Nancy Uh Pelosi, the House Speaker, has done (laughs) a pretty good job of that in the budget talks. She's, of course, not running for president. But that seems to be uh, kind of his Achilles heel, and somebody like that is just so boastful and so full of himself. Get away, get somebody who really goes at him and say, you're not worth as much money as you, you say you are, and you're a phony, and this and that. Uh, I think that's the most effective way to, to really go after him. Totally agree with you, and I thank you for that, and I'm going to throw it back over to David. David? Yes, David Mark, thank you for being on the show tonight. Uh, just tell our listeners how they can read you, whether it's your publication or your social media or just share anything you'd like. Sure. I'm, uh, like I said, a news editor at the Washington Examiner. I'm on, on Twitter at DavidMarkDC, and I'll just give you my email. It's dmark at WashingtonExaminer.com. All right. Hope, hope to uh, have you on sooner than the last time. Yeah, happy to. I'm now in a position, too, where I can do it uh, a lot more frequently. Yes, Thank I you, remember sir. Thank you. Uh, very important. Thank you. Thank you so much. Very good. Have a good night. Take care. You too. You too. All right. David Mark of the Washington Examiner, just great guest. We've had him on from so many different uh, job roles, but he just really, you can tell, he understands the ins and outs, not of Washington, but our whole country, because, I mean, he knew uh, those congressional uh, districts that are in our state seemingly as well, if not better, than we did. Uh, very impressive. Well, uh, guys, I know we were going to talk about one thing, but y'all are going to claim I'm suppressing y'all's right to talk about the excitatory functions of Roy Moore's horse, I think, if we don't talk about that Alabama Senate race, because we've got time for about one more thing. Y'all want to talk Alabama Senate, or do y'all want to go over that Iowa poll? It's up to you, Mr. Host. Okay, well, let, let's, uh, you know, there's been so much Twitter, I mean, uh, text in action on this. Let's talk about this Alabama Senate race. It is considered the most uh, vulnerable Democratic seat that the Democrats have to defend. Doug Jones won and very much an upset, and one would claim, and I think they'd have to be right, that he won because uh, the, Alabama, I mean, the Alabama Republican Party um, ran the most controversial candidate that you could almost find. I mean, you'd have to comb some prisons almost to, to find a more controversial candidate than Roy Moore. Roy Moore is talking about running again. Tim, if Roy Moore runs, can Roy Moore first win the Republican primary? Well, yes, he can. He beat beat, uh, a sitting senator, you know, who had been appointed. So he most certainly, uh, he he has his supporters, I'm sorry to say. And uh, it's kind of like Trump supporters, ain't it, guys? You can't shake them loose. They support this guy no matter what. And there was plenty, as you call, uh, recall, of no matter what. Um, but you know what he's going to do, don't you? He's going to run on one main issue, and he's already said it. It was stolen from him last year. All them lies he said they told about him, 
did the race was stolen from him, and he should be the rightful senator. And I don't know how far that's going to take him, but I think that's what he's going to try to do. Don't you, Catherine? Boy, that would be pretty bold. Yeah. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I think more. you're probably right. You're probably yeah. right. He'll say things like, we're a Republican state. We should have a Republican senator. And I was robbed. I, I agree. I think it's going to be tough no matter who runs. Um, I think, I hope Doug Jones is, you know, whining is, you know, making all the, doing all his call time for money and, um, you know, seeking support from all the people that he can. So I, and I, I hope he's starting now because he needs to build up that, um, that support as he goes what into this race. I'm assuming he's going to run again. Um, yeah. but oh. yeah, I, it's gonna. I think it's gonna be a tough race. Yeah, well, David, it's gonna require I, a lot of I, effort. David, three questions just jump right out at me, and maybe you can hit on some of them. Won't these women surface again? Uh, and number uh, two is that is the Alabama Republican Party going to try to stop him? And what about Governor Ivy? Is she just going to sit there? While while he grabs that nomination, yeah, I mean that that's you would have to think that the Republicans, not only the ones that might actually want the nomination because they could you know possibly win a Senate seat, but just the fact that this guy is like a, a kamikaze uh, dive bomb pilot. I mean, he's just he doesn't care. He'll take anybody down with him. Um, because he's all about him. He's an egomaniac. And you say that the, the ladies and now grown women now, uh, because it was happened, you know, back um, a while back, and that gets them all. Could there be more? Could there be more incidents? And we find out that he did it for a longer period of time, and he took his road show to a different mall. Um, you know, I mean, because now somebody would have had the time to investigate this thing, I mean, and honestly, I mean, couldn't this, couldn't, you know, the Roy Moore biop, you know, you could do a uh, book, you could do a, a, um, a documentary on his life. I mean, and I don't mean as an admiration piece, I mean as a controversial piece. And that means they're going to dig up more things and more details about him and the old Hickory House and, and, and the Gadsden Mall and everything else. Um, yeah. And so it's just going to be so much dirt, although I guess it may be to the point where either you you believe it or you don't believe it on him. But then my next question comes, and this has to be kind of be the final aspect of this. Doug Jones won in a special election with a bit lower turnout. Democrats were more motivated. There are going to be a lot of voters in Alabama that are going to vote on that presidential race that didn't come out to vote for a special election. They're going to vote whether they want the Democratic nominee or they want Donald Trump. And odds are those voters, a lot of them, are going to check the same party's box. Can Doug Jones come a Republican increased vote number of people? Because honestly, Donald Trump, one of his most popular states is Alabama. He had the big rally there. Even if the numbers were inflated, it was still bigger than he got in a lot of places in Mobile. Uh, Jeff Sessions jumped onto him early. Um, can Doug Jones defeat a Republican, Roy Jones, Roy Moore, or not, and Donald Trump, Catherine? That's a really good question, and it means, I mean, it means a lot of work on the ground for the Democratic Party. And uh, I, I mean, I, you've got to, it's it's a really big challenge, I think. Yeah. Tim, your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's going to be tough. You know, Trump didn't endorse more. Let's don't forget that. Uh, number two, there'll be a lot more Republican voters out, uh, but there'll be a lot more Democratic voters out also. A lot of Christian evangelicals in Alabama. I got to think that a lot of them just did not vote for Roy Moore. He was just... Literally, I know they go and vote for Trump and we scratch our heads, but he was literally a bridge too far for them. That the Ten Commandments judge would have 
that checkered past like that, that was just too much for him right there. And so yeah. uh, getting around his personal stuff is <laughs> is still going to be a, a, an issue, even in a presidential election year. Yeah. I, I'm going to take the final word on this. I do think this is going to be tough. But one good thing, last time there was absolutely very little impact on this race of who Doug Jones was. Doug Jones mm-hmm. was a very qualified candidate, but nobody really mm-hmm. voted on Doug Jones. Doug Jones mm-hmm. will be running for reelection. He's been the U.S. Senator from Alabama. There are now going to be people that are going to go in the ballot box or, or watch the ads or whatever and say, Doug Jones, I like him or dislike him. And I think there's going to be a decent number of people that may be Republican-leaning Republicans and say, you know, He's still an all right guy. You know, for a Democrat, he ain't half bad, that kind of thing. And it's kind of like what happened in West Virginia. Um, you know, people still supported Joe Manchin, um, some other places. So if, if, if – uh, and Doug Jones is a little more with the Democratic Party in other places than Joe Manchin. But still, if he can convince people, I'm a good guy, and I think he can do some of that, that's going to help him, and he's going to have to have that to defeat Roy Moore or any other Republican in Alabama. Well, um, thanks again to David Mark, and until next week, that's been the Cozy Vine. Good night, guys. Everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first Revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice.